0: We are beginning a brand new series today. That series is called uh, History in Three Parts, so nothing too ambitious here. I basically just want to cover all of human history in uh, three chunks or three weeks. should be fairly uh, routine and fairly easy to do so. Uh, Let me just say at the outset that in essence, this series, or the aim of this series, is to help us better understand the story that we find ourselves in. And the best way I know how to do that is to explore the meta narrative of the Bible. Now, a meta narrative, sometimes called a grand narrative, is really an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. A meta narrative is really the big picture or the all encompassing theme that unites all the smaller themes and all the individual stories. So, if you're building a house, uh, then you know that there are many workers doing individual jobs. There's plumbers and drywallers, electricians and framers and roofers. All of those contractors are working towards the same thing the completion of the house. The blueprint is the big picture or the meta narrative for the contractor's work. So, the plumber isn't sort of just fitting pipes randomly to nowhere. It's part of a bigger picture, a bigger story. Uh, He's involved in a larger scheme. In the same way, the meta-narrative of the big big story of the Bible really helps us to understand how all the individual stories fit together, and even more than that, helps us to understand how our story fits within this grand story, a story that's unfolding before us. Now, we could... Explore the Bible's meta narrative in lots of different ways. Uh, The basic structure is creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. But we're going to spend the next three weeks exploring the Bible's big story through the lens of these three trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the stump of Jesse, and the tree of life. So let me just say, the inspiration for this series came from a couple of different places. Uh, It came from a short book that I read entitled... Discovering the Good Life, that's sort of where it was pointed out to me, that the big story of the Bible through these three trees. But a second source of inspiration came from the movie 1917 and a review of it that I read. The review caused me to go and re-watch that movie this week. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's a World War I story. It follows the plight of two corporals or two soldiers, Corporals Schofield and Blake, and they've been given an assignment, a mission, to go and deliver a message that will save the lives of 1,600 soldiers who are about to walk into a trap, and one of those soldiers happens to be Blake's brother. Movie set up as one continuous shot. The camera rarely veers away from the two soldiers and what's happening with them. And around the 34-minute mark of that movie, Schofield says to Blake, keep your eyes on the trees. Now, in one sense, on first watch, that might just seem like sort of a throwaway line, right? Just He's just telling his comrade, you know what, keep your eyes on the trees, scan the trees for enemy soldiers. But Sam Mendes, the writer and director of the movie, has a habit of sort of slipping in important lines when you least expect it. And when you watch it a second time, or when you watch it more carefully, you see that the movie is actually dominated by trees. So the movie opens with a single shot of a lush tree. It's in the distance. It's a little bit fuzzy, but it seems more than just a staging shot. And then a few seconds later, Schofield is seated, rested against a tree. At the very least, those trees seem to symbolize rest and peace, And then as Schofield and Blake carry out their mission, they make their way through a war-torn landscape. They often pass by splintered trees, and those trees might symbolize the beauty of this world that is so often wrecked or destroyed by human conflict. At one point, the two soldiers make their way through a crop of lifeless cherry trees surrounded by a stone fence that has been destroyed, and Schofield is disturbed He says they've chopped them all down. He's distressed at the desecration of the trees. Blake is more optimistic and notes they'll grow again when the stones rot, and you'll end up with more trees than before. Now, I don't know the worldview of Sam Mendes, but there is a hint of resurrection here. And that actually comes into play later in the movie. Schofield is later caught in a sort of one-sided firefight. His only way to escape is to jump off a bridge into a rushing river. That river carries him down a waterfall. He barely survives, and he's clinging to a log, and he almost drowns out of sheer exhaustion. But as he's lying there, beginning to slip under the water, some cherry blossoms begin to fall on him and kind of arouse and awaken him. Now, I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but Corporal Blake dies. Schofield is eventually successful in his mission, and the movie ends exactly the way it began, with Schofield resting against a tree. So in one sense, all of the action in the movie takes place between those two trees. So keep your eyes on the tree's Indeed. Now, I realize that's a long introduction, longer than maybe you're used to. I I know that you don't typically come here for my movie reviews or anything like that. But I think just as the trees play a more significant role in that movie than you might first realize, uh, it's the same that is true in the Bible. When we actually look at the, the trees and the preponderance of trees throughout Scripture, we start to see there's something bigger Going on. And so the next three weeks, we're going to explore these three trees together. These are the trees that have shaped and will shape history. So the first tree we're going to look at is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we meet this tree in Genesis chapter 2. Now, we're actually going to look at sections in both Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 this morning, but let me begin. By reading from Genesis 2, beginning in verse 8. And this is what we read. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made up, or made to spring up, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden. To water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him to, in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this is part of the creation account. If you have questions about creation, we've tried to answer those elsewhere this morning. I just want to focus our attention on three things, and the first thing we should take note of is the abundance of God's provision. Now, I think it's important to start here, and this is where the Bible begins. The Bible begins with a revelation of God as our benevolent creator. Now, we're sort of parachuting into Genesis chapter 2, but there are two creation accounts that open the book of Genesis, our origin story. Genesis 1 gives us the view from 30,000 feet. It walks us through six days of creation and concludes each of those days of creation with the words, and God saw that it was good. Until it comes to the end of the sixth day where the and it was good formula is replaced with and it was very good. So Genesis 131 says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So the world God made was good. It was very good and he gifts that world to humanity. The psalmist would later praise God by saying, You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So God has filled his good world with good things for our enjoyment and our satisfaction. Genesis 2 is kind of a zoomed in account of creation, and it zooms in on a particular couple in a particular garden. And everything in this chapter highlights the goodness or the gracious provision of God. So we learn about the goodness of rest, the goodness of nature, the goodness of work, the goodness of marriage, and above all, we learn about the goodness of God. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the trees are described as being both pleasant to look at and good for food. This means that the world is not just a utilitarian place. God has filled the world with beauty and with bounty. Our senses are stimulated. Our desires are satisfied. Now, I think maybe because we're urban dwellers, we've kind of lost our connection with nature. So we sometimes need reminders that food doesn't actually come from the grocery store, right? There's a a, a source that it comes from before that. So we have a, a small cherry tree in our backyard. It's small, but it produces an amazing crop of cherries. Now, in reality, most of the the, the crows and the raccoons end up eating more of the cherries than we do. But there's just something about being able to walk out into the backyard, grab a branch, pick a few cherries, and enjoy what God has given. The fruit of the trees is good for food, especially in its unprocessed state. I don't know if you've ever just sort of stopped to marvel at the abundance of God's provision when it comes to trees. I remember being in Florida one time on on vacation and just being awestruck at the size of some of the orange groves. All of this vitamin C just hanging on trees. And on top of the nutritious value, these orchards were stunningly beautiful. If you've ever driven around the Okanagan, I mean, you've seen the same thing. You've seen miles and miles of apple and cherry and plum and nectarine and peach trees. The world is filled with trees that are pleasant to our sight and pleasing or good for food. And sometimes we just need to stop and we just need to reflect on the goodness of creation, the abundance that God has given us to enjoy and to satisfy. Tim, Tim Savage says it this way. He says, too often we cultivate an austere view of God. We think of him as a close fisted deity who distributes gifts only sparingly and grudgingly and reserves the best portions for himself. But the God of the Bible is not a miserly God. He does not hoard for himself. His liberality radiates outward like the rays of the sun. Like water rushing from a geyser. He is a self-giving God, constantly pouring himself into creation. So the world we live in is a very good world because God is a very good God. And the reason I'm taking time to linger over this verse is because I think sometimes a lot of people have a distorted view of God in their minds. Instead of seeing him as the one who has lavished an abundance of good gifts on those he created, they see him as a cosmic killjoy. He's just there to spoil all our fun. Jesus addressed what a distorted view of God looks like when he teaches us about prayer. And he said this, "Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give, give good gifts to those who ask him? So the opening chapters of Genesis remind us about the abundance of God's provision. We also learn about the necessity of God's prohibition. So the second half of verse 9 says, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life is mentioned kind of just in passing, right? The tree of life was there. We're going to come back to that tree in week number three of the series. But The tree we're focusing on today is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree makes its appearance again in verses 16 and 17. Where it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what exactly was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, at the outset, I think it's important that we call the tree by its full name. It's not the tree of knowledge but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God doesn't give this prohibition because he doesn't want humanity to know things, doesn't want us to use our reasoning capacities. There was a particular kind of knowledge associated with eating from this tree. And I do want to try to define what was entailed with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but I want to do that by making three observations about this prohibition. I think the first thing to remember is that God was not withholding something we need. I won't say too much about this because that was really the point of emphasizing the abundance of God's provision. He gives more than enough. He gives everything we could possibly want. And I do think it's worth reminding ourselves that God had given Adam and Eve access to the tree of life and specifically told them they were free to eat from every tree in the garden with this one exception. Everything that was pleasant to their sight. Everything that was good for food was theirs in abundance. But the tree that became desirable to them was the one they couldn't have. And what was true for them is true for us as well. Kevin DeYoung compares our response to children on vacation at Disney World whose parents have told them that the whole park is theirs. Look, you can go on any ride that you like. You can buy any trinket that you fancy. You can eat any food that you desire. But you're not tall enough to go on Space Mountain. And some kids will respond to that with the attitude that this is the worst trip ever. I mean, if you've ever been to Disneyland, you see all these kids crying, right? They're on the happiest place on earth, but there's something that's got them upset. And it's often something like that. Rather than focusing on the abundant provision, they focus on the one prohibition. And honestly, if you've been there, you know, Space Mountain isn't even really a very good roller coaster, right? (laughs) But this is what we do. Instead of focusing on God's provision, we focus on the prohibition. You hear it in attitudes, like, well, why do I have sexual desires? I can't act them. We look at the abundant provision God has given, and we respond with, but I want that. God is not withholding something we need. Adam and Eve lived in a paradise with everything provided for life and for satisfaction, but they were persuaded to desire something else. Second thing to remember about this prohibition is that God's commands are for our good. So God gives a clear reason for this prohibition. In verse 17, we read, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That seems like a pretty good reason. God doesn't give us commands to ruin our lives, but to prevent us from ruining our lives. Let me just say that again God doesn't give us commands to ruin our lives but to prevent us from ruining our lives. His prohibitions are for our good. So if you were working on a construction crew and and you're building a skyscraper and your boss said to you, don't jump off that ledge. There's a reason for that prohibition, right? Would you think that he's trying to ruin your life? I mean, what, what would you say to that? I can't believe this guy. Who does he think he is telling me what I can and cannot do? In the day you jump, you will die. What does he know? And so you jump from the 27th floor. And for the first few floors, it feels exhilarating. Right, you're going so fast. And as you pass by the 12th floor, you're still thinking, wow, this feels great. I don't see what the problem is. But when you hit the ground, it'll be too late to recognize the wisdom in your boss's prohibition. His words that this was for your good, for your protection. And the reason God gave this prohibition against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was for their good and for our good. Now we'll see in a few minutes that all of the misery that was brought about by their decision to reject his prohibition But we need to start with the understanding that God gives us commands for our good. When the Israelites were on the verge of entering into the promised land, God gave them these commands through Moses. He said, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and if you will not hear, Obeying God's commands leads to life. Rejecting God's commands leads to death. The third observation about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that our relationship with God is defined by our relationship with this tree. Now, this really gets at the heart of what it is that this tree represents. And I think a natural question to ask about this tree is why? I mean, why create a tree, place it in the middle of the garden, and then say, you're not allowed to eat from it? Was God just setting them up to fail? Well, the short answer is that this one tree stood in the middle of the garden as a reminder that man is not God. See, the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil represents a kind of moral autonomy and independence from God. To eat from that tree was a declaration that despite the fact that God had abundantly provided everything required for life and its enjoyment, I'm going to seek my satisfaction outside of God. And the declaration of moral autonomy is the mantra of our age. It's really been the mantra of every age. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament book of Judges. The one thing most people or many people remember about the book of Judges is the refrain that gets repeated several times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, that's true today. Everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. We declare ourselves... Morally autonomous. That's the spirit of our age. And most people operate as if there is no objective standard. Nobody is going to tell me what to do, not even God. I'll decide for myself. Now, I said that our relationship with God is defined by our relationship with this tree. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that we either submit ourselves to God's authority or we declare our own moral autonomy and independence from it. It's an either or proposition. We either choose to find life in God's abundant provision for us, we operate within his boundaries, or we live in rebellion against that. So, where are you at? What is your relationship with this tree? Have you submitted your will to God? Or have you declared your independence from Him? Now that decision, as we see it unfold here, it's not an inconsequential decision. And this takes us to the third thing we discover about this tree. So we learn about the abundance of God's provision, we learn about the necessity of God's prohibition, and we learn about the effects of our rebellion. And this moves us into chapter 3. I'm going to read a good chunk of that in in total this morning. And just make some comments about it. And then what I want to do is quickly highlight what changed with the eating of this tree. But let me begin by reading verses 1 to 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He makes God's requirements far more strict than they were. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she focuses on the prohibition more than the provision. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when they ate from the fruit of this tree, they got what they wanted. Their eyes were opened. But they also got far more than what they bargained for. In some ways, partaking of the fruit probably seemed like a small decision, but it had massive consequences. And this, in fact, is how sin works. I'm reminded of a story I stumbled across some time ago about a man named Antoine Yates. Antoine Yates lived in an apartment in Harlem, New York. Sometime in the year 2000, he decided he needed a pet, but not just any pet. He smuggled a baby Siberian tiger into his apartment. Now, it wasn't much bigger than a cat when he got it. The landlord and the other apartment residents had no idea. Antoine Yates knew the tiger wasn't supposed to be there. He knew he was breaking the rules, but when you want something, you want it. And like a good pet owner, Antoine Yates began to feed his pet tiger. And like a good pet, the tiger began to grow. A lot. He would later say in his testimony before a court, As this tiger began to grow, I knew I should get rid of it, but I had a true affection for it. It had a hold on me, and I couldn't bring myself to part with it. Eventually, he found that he was spending more money on food for his tiger than for himself. It grew to almost 500 pounds. And one day while he was feeding it raw meat, it turned on him and mauled him severely. He barely escaped the apartment with his life. He ended up in the ER and in intensive care. The ER doctors realized the wounds could not be caused by a regular house pet. They sent the police over to Antoine's apartment to investigate. They were shocked to find a 450-pound tiger in the apartment. It took several tranquilizer shots to subdue the animal. It took eight men to carry it out. And this is how sin works in us. It begins with seemingly small decisions. So we dabble in pornography. We experiment with drugs. We engage in a little harmless flirtation. We sample a bit of forbidden fruit. And before we know it, we are trapped and enslaved by the very things we thought would give us escape or the very things we looked to for escape. Now, in Adam and Eve's case, the consequences were both immediate and severe. They immediately felt a sense of shame at their nakedness. And the results of their rebellion was, were universal. Listen now to verses 8 to 14 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So let me just highlight for you four of the consequences of eating from this tree. The first one is that our relationship with God is broken. If God comes to the visit, it seems to be that this was the case, that this was the habit. They had such fellowship with God that he would visit with them in the garden. But this time when God shows up, they hear him coming and they run for cover. So instead of God's presence being a source of delight, it becomes a source of dread. That is spiritual death. Cut off from God. Second consequence is that our relationships with one one another are strange. And you can see that all through this passage. You see it in the way Adam and Eve now relate to each other. Instead of being naked and unashamed, they're ashamed of their nakedness. They try to hide from one another. Then Adam uses Eve as the excuse for why he ate the forbidden fruit. The woman you put here, she gave it to me. And then verse 16, if we went a bit further, give us God's words to the woman. And there it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The idea is that rather than marriage being this harmonious relationship between husband and wife, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, the relationship becomes one of struggle. And the tension we experience in the marriage relationship is a byproduct of the fall, of this decision. And in reality, this kind of relational tension ends up affecting all of our other relationships as well. I mean, you don't need to read much further in Genesis to see this. When you come to chapter 4, we read about Cain murdering his brother Abel and things spiral out of control from there. A third consequence is that our relationship with nature and work is altered. And we see this later in the chapter in verses 17 to 19. And there it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of this tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the very ground that we inhabit is cursed. Along with the stunning beauty of creation, there are now thorns and thistles. So work is a good thing. Back in chapter 2, we read the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it, to steward it, to care for it. Work was not the curse. Man was supposed to steward and care for what God had made, but now that relationship's been changed. And the curse means that our work is now subject to futility and to frustration. And then a fourth consequence is that our access to the tree of life is blocked. So Genesis chapter 3 ends like this. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this gives us a sense of what it meant when God said, In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Access to the tree of life is cut off. We work by the sweat of our brow and we return to the dust from which we came. Death is now the dark cloud that hangs over every life. And this is where we find ourselves today. We live east of Eden. So much for coming to church to be encouraged, right? Now, look, we could just end here. But even in a passage that's as bleak as this one, there is a note of grace. There's a couple of them, actually. There's the note in verse 15, part of God's words to the serpent, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Now, that offspring or seed of the woman turned out to be Jesus. And while the serpent wounded him, Jesus will crush his head. The second grace note is found in verse 21, where it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The coverings that Adam and Eve made for themselves were insufficient. So God makes coverings for them. And those coverings would have required a sacrifice. This points forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. The way we like to say it around here is that in salvation, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. One of the songs we often sing here says, I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone But Jesus, you made a way. And that's the good news out of this. While we have all partaken of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, while we all would be subject to God's curse, Jesus has made a way for us. He has actually, as we'll see in week three, granted us access to the tree of life. So we're going to leave it there for today. I'm just going to pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder through this story, this foundational story to our lives, that you have provided absolutely everything we need. Everything we need can be found in you, but in reality, we often go searching for something else. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your abundant provision, we, that you would remind us that you have given us your commands for our good, for our protection. And that you would remind us, Lord, that in Jesus we have a way to be right with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.